listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with community-backed independent for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. We We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel, and this is a podcast in which we discuss policy issues affecting Australia and the Goldstein electorate. And of course, we are now very close to Election Day. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past, present and emerging on unceded land. We've got a big episode of Find Your Voice today with a panel of guests here to discuss Australia's climate, economy and clean energy potential. John Grimes is the Chief Executive of the Smart Energy Council, an independent body representing a diverse group of around 1,000 companies operating across Australia. Bayard Jafari is Chief Executive of the Electric Vehicle Council. and Bayard works with industry, government and the media to accelerate the electrification of road transport for Australia. And Wendy Farmer is a Gippsland local and president of Voices of the Valley, a community advocacy group that formed during the catastrophic 2014 Hazelwood Brown coal mine fire in Victoria. Thanks to the three of you for joining us today. Welcome. John, I'll come to you first. You say that Australia's best days lie ahead. By transitioning rapidly, we can create more wealth, more job opportunities and cement ourselves as a moral global leader. I've been wondering during this campaign whether part of the problem that we have is the framing of the conversation, that we're looking at things often the wrong way around, where we focus on what we stand to lose rather than what we stand to gain. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, While um, renewables is definitely about the environment, it's also about economics. And so we we now sit on the cusp of the world's cheapest and and greenest energy anywhere in the world. If you put a solar panel in in, uh, northern Victoria and you put the same solar panel uh, into Germany or South Korea, the one in in Victoria will produce up to 2.6 times more energy than the one in those other places. And people know if you put solar on your rooftop today, um, you can either buy power from the grid at maybe 30, 35 cents kilowatt hour, or the amount that the cost of the solar panel amortized over 20 years works out to be about five cents a kilowatt hour. So this energy isn't just a little bit cheaper than coal and gas. It's about one third the cost and it's, it's actually falling further still. So if Australia doesn't have an imagination of how we harness the world's cheapest energy to actually value-add minerals to attract um, uh, heavy industry and, and manufacturing in this country to make every business more competitive because e- electricity is a cost in every business and every transaction, then Zoe, we don't have an imagination at all. I'm interested that you use the phrase moral global leader because I feel that climate policy has been weaponized in this country as a moral issue for so long. Now it's become an economic issue, which is a much easier sell. What, what does being a moral global leader look like, do you think? Australia's always been at the forefront of this technology. Most of the solar technology used around the world was invented right here, you know, UNSW, CSIRO, over many years. So, so we really have pushed the technology out to the world, but successive governments in this country have not harnessed 
focused on and exploited the opportunities that that brings. So that means that today we're, we're the sort of the dumb consumers of those solar products. They're made overseas. Uh, and, and the opportunity for us to do things like value add and actually make batteries in this country is actually slipping out of our, our fingers as well. So we need to be thinking about what, what are the jobs and economic opportunities? Because it, it is a moral imperative, but it's also an economic imperative. And we have all the elements to absolutely um, harness this fantastic future for for Australia. Wendy, Voices of the Valley formed, as I said, in re- response to that 2014 disaster. Uh, and since then, your, your movement has developed, uh, but also the climate debate has shifted quite drastically. Can you speak to the main concerns and priorities of the Latrobe Valley community currently? Well, the main concerns are, are, you know, we lose our jobs if we transition from coal. Um, I don't look at transition as we're moving from something. I look at transition as we're moving towards something, which takes away a lot of that fear of, you know, having nothing. When we started campaigning in 2015 about, um, you know, we were transitioning and our energy would change, we had politicians everywhere saying nothing's going to change. You know, and I just look at the opportunities that have already been missed in Latrobe Valley and across Victoria and Australia because we've had politicians that have, haven't been prepared to actually stand up and say, well, things are changing. How do we make sure that communities are taken along that journey and not left behind? Yeah, so I've seen some surveys of people who work in coal and related industries in the Latrobe Valley, which appear to support the idea that most of those people support a a shift to renewables. Is that reflected among the people that you speak to? It's a real mixture, Zoe, on people that support the transition and the the new economy of, of renewable energy and what will change. There's a big fear, though, that a lot will lose their jobs. And that happens in Latrobe Valley because of how privatisation happened. You know, our community was really hurt and it's like an open wound that is still open and people are hurting. So they fear that they can't necessarily even trust government in any policy. They also don't. I think renewable energy doesn't have a full understanding of how it works. So we often hear coal workers say, baseload power, you need baseload power, therefore you need coal. What we're seeing this week in Latrobe Valley is, you know, in Luoyang last Monday, or sorry, Monday week ago, three units out of four weren't working. Your lawn didn't have all their units working. So we're actually seeing renewable energy picking up pieces already yet we've got very little renewable energy in the grid yeah there's lots of there's lots in that that I'll come back to momentarily but I want to bring Bayard into the conversation obviously EVs are a critical piece of this broader debate about transitioning our communities uh, tell us what the EV market looks like currently Bayard and and what role does it play in accelerating and supporting that transition yeah, it's interesting. We've heard a lot about the uh, economics of global leadership in this space. And if you look at our market and what we're doing here in Australia, something last year, something like 2% of people who wanted to buy a new car were able to buy an electric vehicle. There's a far larger waiting list of people, but only 2% of them were able to access one because there were only so many electric vehicles bought to our market in the first place. When we look at that compared to other comparable nations, other places like the UK, the USA, other markets, that number is closer to about 20%. So again, not the majority of people, actually the majority of people are still buying petrol and diesel engines, but still 10 times more than people in Australia who are able to access the product. 
And you think, oh, well, how much does that really matter for us? And, you know, if they're just cars at the end of the day or they're just buses or vans or trucks at the end of the day. I think when looking at the opportunity to address climate change, the International Panel on Climate Change recently released their latest report. And in it, they said that electric vehicles are the single most important technology for decarbonizing transport. Now, Australia is the only country in the world that, set, that has the reserves in our ground of all of the metals that go into making the batteries that go into electric vehicles, that make electric vehicles what they are. So an ambitious country, an optimistic country would say, this transition to a globally decarbonized economy is a huge and monumental opportunity for us here in Australia. We've got global experts saying, we need the things that this country has, you know, and we need them turned into batteries and we need them to sell it to the rest of us elsewhere in the world so that we can decarbonize transport. Instead, we're 10 times behind the rest of the developed world when it comes to decarbonizing our transport sector and when it comes to adopting electric vehicles. So being behind also usefully means that we know exactly what it is that needs to be done because everybody else has done it before us. There's a well-worn path in front of us. The one missing piece of the puzzle for us is the political will to get on with it and as a result, get all of the massive benefits it provides us to. Just give me some context, Bayard, in regard to sort of how big a part transport plays in this transition, uh, you know, compared to um, electricity and the power supply, EVs are sort of just a small piece of that, right? No, so transport makes up about 20%, close to 20% of Australia's emissions. And so road transport, it makes up about 80% of that 20%. So after electricity and gas transport's next, um, we now have a few places like the ACT, for instance, in Australia, where because they've been decarbonizing their electricity transports, the largest source of emissions, a few countries around the world are in a similar position. They've got more renewable energy. So transport's the biggest problem that they've got to tackle. And again, you know, the answers follow one another. You want to invest in more renewable energy, more clean energy, and then use that energy to power more things like our transport system. And so it is, it's that important piece of making sure that we're moving everything at the same time. The faster we move all of our vehicles to using electricity that we make here in Australia, while we're also decarbonizing that electricity, the faster we all get to benefit most immediately you know, from, from the emissions benefits. But also, as I mentioned, the sooner we actually also started making Australia an innovation destination, the sooner we, uh, we're starting to see you know, these battery plants being established to serve the world's electric vehicle market very close to our shores. We're seeing them being built in Thailand and Indonesia and Malaysia, those are our metals going not very far away from Australia, turning into battery plants where they make a lot more money than the metals that we're selling, going into vehicles and then being sold back to us at some, at some future point. John, can I take you to some of the structural issues that come up and often international comparisons are made? So one that's been floated to me of late is California, where the cost of power has really escalated due to a whole combination of factors around renewable energy, the grid, the way that pricing is structured and those sorts of things. And then there's this, this sort of ongoing question, as was raised about baseload power, you know, what do you do when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, and we don't have at the moment enough battery storage? Can you sort of frame that um, to those who say, this is not going to work, we can't do it this quickly because we're just not set up for it? 
Yeah, totally. So, so absolutely, the technology is all in place. You put solar, wind, batteries. You do things like pumped hydro storage. Uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, you've got you know other technologies, and you can bring together a whole system. This is not new. It's happened all around the world. There are major countries and regions of the world that have transitioned to 100% renewables. In fact, Bayard just spoke about the ACT uh, in in uh, in Australia, and of course, South Australia running at about 70% renewables for the entire year. There are many, many days, about 100 or so days per year, where South Australia is 100% powered by renewable energy. So it's not just a small jurisdiction, it's big jurisdictions too. Um, what we're in is a period of transition. And for that transition, you need a plan because currently we have big coal-fired power stations. Now, before we can turn those off, we actually have to build new capacity ahead of turning off the coal-fired power stations because you've got to, you know, we're driving this, this car, we're transitioning from internal combustion to electric, right, is my analogy. Uh, and, and you have to build the new engine before you can switch the old engine off. Now, what the federal government refuses to do is to put any framework or incentive in place to build the capability ahead of turning off the system, i.e. there is no renewable energy target out to 2030. Zero. That's Australia's target. And that's what they're proposing in this election. And at the same time, they won't countenance any discussion about, about a plan or a timetable to retire what is a very old, clapped out, very increasingly unreliable coal-fired generation fleet. These were power plants built in the 50s, 60s and 70s, and they're absolutely shot. And so they won't even have that discussion because this is an ideological question. Well, it shouldn't be about ideology, Zoe. It should be about economics, it should be about the environment, and it should be about the people and, and electricity users and people have to pay the bill. And so do we need, um, just from that baseload power sort of insurance perspective during the transition. I know the ALPs talked about gas being a transition option to underpin the shift that we're going to have to see. Is that something that you think, you know, has merit? Or, or And I know gas is very polluting, but, you know, is that is that a thing in the transition phase? So all of the modelling shows that actually to achieve sort of 90%, around 90% of, of, of renewable energy generation with appropriate storage and batteries and so forth, and electric vehicles will be very helpful for this because they are batteries on wheels. You can actually plug them in and you can actually use them in a two-sided fashion. But so 90% is, is really, really quite straightforward, easy to achieve. Once you get beyond that, there, there certainly is you know, that you need to have all the pieces of the puzzle. The problem is that by framing this as saying that gas is the way forward, we're going to invest in infrastructure that's going to last for the next 70 years that's going to become a carbon bomb around our necks, right? Gas is not the answer to this transition. And why would you go to a fuel that is actually four or five times more expensive than renewables? It doesn't stack up environmentally. It doesn't stack up economically. This is a front that the federal government uses because they've got mates in the gas industry and they want to, they want to progress that industry. Um, it, it's, uh, it is, in my view, an, an economic crime against the people of Australia. Okay, so so you're we're in the sort of Saul Griffith um, headspace and Saul was a guest on this podcast and I know a lot of people have listened to that, electrify everything. So you're in the, in the battery headspace. That's the way we have to do it. Saul is absolutely right. Electrify everything. Now, there's already a strong correlation between solar and wind. Solar obviously produces in the daytime. 
Wind time produces majority of the time at night time. There's also in Victoria a very helpful correlation between, it's an anti-correlation between onshore wind and offshore wind. When the onshore wind is blowing, the offshore tends not to be and vice versa. So you put those pieces together, what you're talking about is very little slivers of energy that you need to fill in the gaps. And that's what you do with smart energy storage. So that will be, mainly it'll be battery storage, it'll be tapping into electrified vehicles, and there might be some pumped hydro storage or, or, or other things in the mix, but that'll be the bulk of it. Yeah, so Wendy, I want to come to you on offshore wind, because obviously you're involved with Star of the South, which is, you know, I guess a replacement industry for, for Gippsland as coal is transitioned out. Just sort of take us through what you think that could bring to the region and also from the perspective of bringing the community along and reassuring people about job losses, paint us a picture of how that might look. Well, I think Star of the South and the other um, wind farms that have been um, looked at at the moment on offshore in offshore in Gippsland are really exciting because it brings a whole new industry in. Not only does it bring offshore industries, it brings onshore industries. So if you've got offshore wind farms, you've got to build an industry around that. It's been really exciting to watch Star of the South move forward into their different um, areas and their different studies and how they've gone forward. But this is a project that could have been off the ground a long time ago. You know, if we have had a federal government to stand up four years ago and say, we are going to look at offshore wind and bring in legislation that in the end communities and unions had to fight for, um, we could have had this industry up and going. So while we say that we don't have enough industry we've actually had a hold back of industry we've had a government that supports the coal industry only or the gas industry and they don't seem to look at the new industries and often put it to our um you know phone systems we didn't have an argument about the transition of telephones from telegrams to landlines to mobile phones consumer decided what they wanted and I can't see why we've got federal government standing in the way now to actually have a debate about our energy. Let the consumer um, decide. The consumer will look at the price of energy and decide what they want. Companies are calling for support to actually build the infrastructure around renewable energy, yet we're not seeing that support. Companies are calling for support for the um, electric cars. We saw in Gippsland a promise of an um, sea electric, uh, not sure if I'm allowed to name that, you know, a company that went overseas because they couldn't get support to actually build their industry. What a shame for um, Victoria, but Gippsland in particular. You know, so with my work with Friends of the Earth and as a Gippsland campaigner for renewable energy, I see these communities all the time wanting renewable energy, want to be part of the renewable energy, wanting to support the grid you know, there's so many long lines in Gippsland that they can actually support that grid with renewable energy. And I've just, I shake my head sometimes and I just think our communities are missing out. Victoria is missing out. Australia is missing out if we don't take these opportunities up now. They're going overseas. They'll continue to go overseas. One day we may look around and go, what happened to the jobs? Bayard, I want to come to you um, and, you know, it's kind of like all those negative questions that you get asked that you have to try to myth bust or get an answer to. So one of the latest ones is around 
mining of the particular minerals that would provide components for EVs and batteries and that that could have its own unintended environmental impacts. I think there's been some coverage of this Four Corners did a piece, you know, suggesting that there could be mining in the Tarkine wilderness in Tasmania, for example, um, and that we have to grapple with that. Can you just give some context around the environmental impact of the components and also waste and such that that results um, from this transition in terms of battery recycling and those sorts of things? Yeah, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is there is this global challenge around mining and how do we both decarbonize it and also ensure that it's acting you know, under the best environmental practices. And quite often, the one very good answer to those things is to ensure that we're using Australian products, not products from elsewhere in the world that may have more relaxed standards or more, even more relaxed governments sometimes than ours that don't uphold standards. The other really important part is to make sure that our standards are absolutely fit for purpose and always improving as well. And this is an area where, you know, I, I haven't come from an automotive background into this space, but dealing with our members, companies who have been in the automotive space for a very long time from some companies who started internal combustion engines, you know, who've been there from day one, you tell us that there are some of these supply chain challenges where we get different types of metals or steel or things from, um, you know, the scope three emissions, emissions around the fuel that we use and so on that we've all known existed and has always been there from day one. The really great benefit that we're seeing now though is that by moving to electric vehicles, we're paying a bit more attention to some of these things. And importantly, our customers are demanding us to pay more attention to these things. So we're seeing right across that supply chain for them of saying, well, not only are we making electric vehicles that are zero emissions when they drive, but the factory that builds the electric vehicles is also going zero emissions because this is something that customers expect of us. They want a truly zero emissions product. And then right down to, well, where is the metal coming from? And what are the worker conditions? What are the environmental conditions? What are the conditions right across the supply chain from the moment it's dug out to going to a battery manufacturing plant to coming to us? Well, we've been able to turn a blind eye to some of these things and say, well, it's a global economy. It's not our fault. But actually now for the first time, thanks to electric vehicles and thanks to that benefit of electric vehicles, we are paying a bit more attention. And it's, you know, it is led by our customers. It is them saying, we want to make sure that we're doing the right thing holistically, not just, you know, end product, not just emissions on the roads. So we are seeing a lot more, um, you know, investment occurring into that space. We're certainly seeing from particularly European-based car companies, but car companies around the world saying, you know, there are deadlines on these things. You have to act according to these environmental, our very stringent environmental standards. You have to show us that you're making improvements all the time, but also there's a cut off. If you don't act within this, you know, type of standard, if you're not decarbonized enough, we'll buy product from someone else. Mm. And these are the areas, I mean, John can tell you about this and people in the steel and aluminium industry can tell you about this. So there are these global, you know, carbon and environmental taxes that already exist and they exist from customers saying, we demand it. So whether or not your country gets its act together and is coordinated about it, or, you know, we're, we're just going to go elsewhere. We're going to buy products from somewhere else. So John, coming to you, um, there's that common question that I'm getting around battery recycling. Is that a problem area? 
Look, battery recycling, it's really a question of scale of recycling. So, you know, in the past, you know, we've been recycling batteries for a long, long time around the world, right? Very standard practice. But but the onset of electric vehicles is, is really going to take it to another level. So too batteries for energy storage. And the battery you use for, you know, to collect the solar on the side of your house or the Elon Musk built, you know, in South Australia, the 100 megawatt, which has now been upgraded, big battery and big batteries happening elsewhere, all the batteries in electric vehicle are basically the same technology. It's all the same thing. So it's really important that we have a stewardship program that really thinks about this from cradle to grave. And so the industry is absolutely committed to setting that standard because as Bayard says, we actually have a global reputation to, to uphold here in Australia. Zoe, you remember the days when Australia punched above its weight. We had the moral authority on the world stage. And it's really incumbent on all of us to really work hard to get that back because the cost to Australia has been enormous. And getting things like stewardship programs for battery recycling right, PV panel recycling right, those are the things that are absolutely central. They're the things that we haven't been able to get movement on under the current federal government, and we're desperate to see a positive way forward. Hmm. So my targets as of now are 80% renewable energy by 2030, 60% emissions cut by that time as well. Um, and yet I have occasional combative conversations with people who uh, get quite aggressive saying to me, the, the electricity system will crash, we'll have outages, the cost of power is going to go sky high, um, we can't reach those targets in time, what, what you're doing is going to ruin the country. So please answer that, John. Yeah, 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 <laughs> what what is the correct response to well, well, uh, this kind of conversation? Well, well <laughs> let me refer you to AEMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator. So they're a very conservative body. They, they manage and run Australia's power network. And they, and they, they launched something called the, the, um, uh, the Integrated System Review, right, to, say, to look at energy in Australia. And they tell us that basically on, you know, almost a, a do-nothing basis, Australia is going to be close to that 80% renewable energy by 2030 mark anyway. And that's because of economics. Right, these clapped out old power stations are going to close down. They're not going to replace them with expensive polluting technology when they can buy renewable energy at a fraction of the cost and not have the, the economic overhead. So, so not only is it going to take very little to actually hit that 80% target, um, but, uh, but actually th they think that we can actually go well beyond that. And it's, a, it's the massive scare campaign by our opponents, Zoe, where they say, well, well, if the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, then then the whole economy stops. It's just garbage, right? And it's been it's been an, it's been an effective scare campaign, but it is simply false and wrong. Um, and so and so, what what we need to do is just to get on with it, have a plan, make the transition as cheap and as seamless as possible. Uh, and, uh, and that's what will deliver dividends for the Australian economy. So be completely secure. You're absolutely on the right side. Um, all of the experts are lined up behind you. Uh, and it's just really the propaganda that's, that's stopping that taking hold in the public's imagination. Wendy, I want to come back to you um, just for a, a final comment, you know, from a community perspective. As I said right at the beginning, a lot of what i I've been doing, and especially after having conversations with the likes of Saul Griffith, is to reframe every conversation I, I have through an optimistic lens to say, well, it's not about what we're going to lose, it's about what we're going to gain. Um, this, this applies to all sorts of things. Um, gender equality is another area where that lens is quite, quite useful. Um, but are you optimistic about the future of the La Trobe Valley, about the future of Gippsland as we make this transition? 
I think John said it earlier, we need to have a plan, we need certainty. We actually need our governments to stand up and say, okay, we're moving forward. If we don't, we have nothing because we're watching the, you know, when you're talking about renewable energies before and saying, well, they won't work. Well, actually, we've seen coal fail at a really fast rate. And Victoria is at threat of, you know, really high prices because we actually haven't got the energy. Um, so the only thing that's kept it going is the renewable energy that is in the grid right now, which is still a small amount. Um, I'm optimistic. I think things will change. I think people are standing up for change and they want that cheaper energy and they're seeing how renewable energy is working. Um, and the benefit for my community is not only will we have more jobs, we will be have a cleaner environment and we will have our health back. One of the things about our area is the high health impact of coal and burning coal. And it's something that we never account for in the dollars when we say coal is cheap. We actually don't look at the health of the community. And I think that's what's really important as well. Coal communities have paid the price for creating energy. We've been proud to create the energy for Victoria. But it's time that we're looked after and we move forward in the renewable energy and we all work together. I want to thank the three of you for joining us today. John Grimes is the CEO of the Smart Energy Council. Bayar Jafari is the CEO of the Electric Vehicle Council. And Wendy Farmer is a Gippsland local and president of the Voices of the Valley. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Find Your Voice. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for having us. You can learn more about Zoe, her policies, and how you can support this grassroots campaign at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and share with your family and friends. Every bit of support matters. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, Level 1, 9-214 Bay Street, Brighton, Victoria, 